So we introduced this book last week with the first six verses where God makes an appeal to his people Israel, having recently returned from captivity in Babylon. They've now begun to return to the land of Judah and Jerusalem in particular. They started to rebuild their temple. They laid the foundation and then got stuck. There was opposition from uh, neighboring peoples. And so they got frustrated and stopped and the work had been lying dormant uh, for about 16 years, it seems. And now uh, the Lord raises up Haggai and Zechariah as prophets to minister to the people and encourage them and exhort them to retake the work, right? To pick that back up, build the temple, rebuild the city. And he offered this beautiful promise that he would return, that the presence of God would return to his people. And he exhorted them in turn to return to him. Indeed, the, the sort of theme of that passage was uh, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. And indeed, the theme of the book of Zechariah is returning. It's the returning of God to his people in blessing and covenant faithfulness and the returning of his people to him in keeping and uh, taking up covenant obedience uh, as God dwells with them again. So those were the first six verses sort of introducing the whole book. And what happens now is the book starts to get a little weird. Uh, having spent most of last year in Revelation, you've got some preparation for this. It shouldn't strike you maybe as quite as, as strange or difficult because we spent about 10 months unpacking apocalyptic visions in the book of Revelation. And Zechariah has a series of those kinds of visions now. And so if I were, I'll give you a brief kind of outline of the whole book. Uh, and then we'll talk about this specific section of the book that we're in. So there, there's, of course, that introduction, that prophetic exhortation in, in the first six verses. Then uh, the, the rest of chapter one and through chapter six are taken up with eight night visions that God gives to the prophet Zechariah. And the genre of these visions is it's sort of a, a prototype of what, we, what has come to be called apocalyptic. So Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are, a part of, are in that apocalyptic genre. And of course, the book of Revelation and then at the end of the New Testament is in the genre of apocalyptic. And Zechariah's eight night visions uh, follow very much that kind of pattern. So be prepared to see lots of strange images and we're looking for lots of symbolism. We don't want to get too bogged down in trying to attach every detail of a vision to some particular meaning. Sometimes the, the details in the vision are just painting a picture and so we're, we're looking for uh, what is the overall sort of spiritual reality being presented by these visions. And for the most part, Zechariah is guided by an angelic interpreter uh, who sort of helps him understand what's going on, which is also very helpful to us. Because when we're like, what does that image mean? Generally, Zechariah asks the same question. Uh, what does this mean? And the angel will say, well, the horses were this and the person was that and the lampstand was this, right? So that's kind of, we're following the angel to understand what's going on in these images. But uh, chapters one, verse seven, all the way through chapter six are these eight night visions in this kind of apocalyptic genre. Then chapter seven and eight changes, uh, changes the literary form and there, it's more of a narrative with some sort of prophetic exhortation. You might call it a sermon embedded in chapter seven and eight. There's the question of fasting and the question of justice, kind of what it means to live as God's people in the land. And then the final section of the book, chapters nine through 14, are two lengthy prophetic oracles 
of blessing. So again, we're back to the kind of prophetic genre where the prophet is speaking the word of God to, uh, to the people. And they are these promises of God's blessing on his people. So we have the eight night visions in chapters one through six. We have the, the fasting and justice questions in chapter seven and eight. And then we have the oracles of blessing in chapters nine through 14. So that's broadly how the book is structured. Now, this particular section that we're beginning to look at today, the eight night visions, I, I'm going to argue that they're actually structured in a, in a uh, chiasmic structure. Now, that's a, sort of a strange word and probably not common to most of us because it's not really a literary form that's popular in our own day. But in Hebrew scriptures, this was pretty common. And you'll find chiasms uh, all over, not all over, but, but scattered throughout the, the Old Testament especially. And sometimes, I think, even in the New Testament. And so these eight visions are arranged in such a way that they, they, the first and the last correspond to each other. And the second and third correspond to the sixth and seventh. And then the fourth and fifth visions are parallel to each other and form the sort of tip of the spear. If you imagine sort of a, a pyramid, the point of a chiasm is right in the middle. It's at that tip of the pyramid with the sort of ascending uh, point uh, uh, images to, to the outside that correspond and all lead to and away from, kind of flowing from that central point. So to get a little more specific, the first vision that we'll look at today shows Yahweh's horsemen patrolling the earth and proclaiming peace. And it's a peace before judgment, to be sure. And then visions two and three deal with Yahweh defeating Israel's enemies. We'll look today at all those first three images, by the way. Then in chapter, uh, the fourth vision in chapter three deals with uh, a pure priest. It, point, it points us to Joshua, the high priest of Israel, and he is clearly an image of the messianic priest, the one who would come and fulfill the role of high priest. And then the fifth vision is about a king. It's the work being done in the hand of the governor, Zerubbabel, and he is standing in as an image of the messianic king. So visions four and five deal with a priest and a king, both of those, I believe, clearly pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, who would ultimately fulfill that those roles of the priest and king. Then visions six and seven deal with Yahweh purging sin from his people, similar to Yahweh's dealing with their enemies, sort of external opposition and internal opposition, you might say. And then the final vision, the eighth vision, uh, shows chariots of Yahweh's horsemen patrolling the earth and proclaiming peace. And this is a new peace after the divine judgment has fallen and the people have been secured, right? And so visions one and visions eight are parallel in that way. Would have been helpful for me to print that out for you probably. Sorry, maybe I'll give that to you next time. Uh, but the overarching message of these visions is that Yahweh will defeat the enemies of his people and the world will live at peace under the rule of his anointed king and priest. That's what these eight visions are trying to get across, I think, in in vivid images and, and symbolic ways. So let's take these uh, one at a time, looking at these first three visions today. So starting in chapter one, verses seven through 17, I will read you these verses and then we'll consider uh, what, they, what they mean. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, 
the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. Behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So this first image shows these horsemen on patrol. This was something that uh, particularly the Persian Empire was known for, for these strong, noble uh, warriors who would ride out on horses all around the Persian Empire, sometimes to get, to get taxes and things like that from the, the, the peoples that they were uh, over, and sometimes just trying to make sure that everything was uh, okay, and then reporting back to the king about what was going on. And so there were these Persian horsemen who patrolled the earth, patrolled their empire, uh, and reported on how things were going. Of course, Babylon is the center of the Persian empire, where the people of Israel had been uh, exiled to. And so we see this, this prophetic image of God's horsemen patrolling not just the Persian empire, but indeed the whole earth. That's the, the Lord's uh, jurisdiction. It's all the world. And the, the horsemen are patrolling all the earth on behalf of Yahweh and telling him how things are. And so he says, uh, the, 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 it's, we're told the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. I think that that indicates that the man that he first saw in verse 8, he says, behold, a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees. And then in verse 11, it says, uh, they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. So I think the man who was with the red horse and who was in the myrtle trees is th this angel of the Lord. And uh, they are told, or the angel is told by these patrolmen, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Which sounds like good news, right? You want the earth to be at rest. But that's not how the angel, the interpreting angel, who's helping Zechariah understand his visions, that isn't how he responds. He responds with a lament. As soon as he hears this, look in verse 12, the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? You see, the nations at rest to Israel means 
Israel is still oppressed. Israel is still under the burden of the, the rule of the Babylonian uh, empire. And so the angel, on behalf of the people of Israel, wants to see the nations disturbed by God's divine justice. And so because the nations are at rest, Israel is still burdened under captivity. Now, obviously, some of the people, as we've already seen, have returned to the land of Judah, but there are still many who are living in Babylon. Perhaps they've gotten comfortable there. Perhaps they've decided, I don't really want to make the journey back to Jerusalem. This is fine. We'll just stay in Babylon. And so they've been kind of lulled into, uh, into satisfaction in Babylon. And so we see this cry, this cry of how long from the angel, kind of as, as from the heart of the people of God. And how long is often the cry of God's people. Just as for captive Israel in Zechariah's day, Christians in the 21st century find ourselves waiting yet again for God's Messiah to return, for his final deliverance from sin and suffering. How long is not an uncommon cry from the hearts and lips of God's people? Perhaps you have a personal how long, Lord, of your own today. A stubborn sin struggle, a nagging pain, a relational burden. We're invited to cry out to God in longing and to know that your God's heart is for your good and for your ultimate restoration. That is what he's working toward even in our struggles and our brokenness and our longing. How long, O oh Lord? And the answer that Yahweh gives to this lament in verse 13 is beautiful. It says, the Lord, that's Yahweh, answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And then presumably, those comforting and gracious words are what the angel then reports to Zechariah in verses 14 through 17. And we see the heart of God revealed for his people in two particular ways. First of all, his anger has shifted from Judah to the nations who are at ease, right? So the angel says, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and Judah against whom you've been angry these 70 years? It is during this whole period of exile. And Yahweh's answer is, my anger is now burning at the nations, the nations who are at ease, namely the nations who have been oppressing the people of Israel, his people. And so his anger has shifted. He's no longer angry with Jerusalem and with Judah. He's angry with these pagan nations who have kept Israel under their boot for all these years and are continuing to oppress them. And secondly, he shows his disposition toward Jerusalem has changed from anger. Clearly he was angry. He told the people in uh, the, the opening verses, verse two, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. He was angry with anger at your fathers. And then the angel said, how long will you not have mercy on Judah against whom you've been angry? So he was angry, but what he says now about them is, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Judah. That's not the same thing. And we usually think of jealousy as a bad thing, 
Like when we say someone's jealous, we think that's a negative characteristic. But there is a jealousy that is totally fitting and right and appropriate for one who is in covenant with another. We think, of course, of a husband and a wife who should be jealous for one another, jealous to guard and keep that vow and that promise, guarding, uh, jealous to guard that relationship and to care for it and to nurture it, jealous to protect and preserve the one to whom we are covenanted. And Yahweh in the same way is jealous for Judah because they are his covenant people. He is in covenant with them and he is jealous for them. That is, they are mine. I will guard, I will protect, I will preserve. And so the heart of God toward Judah has changed. It has softened. He's turned from his anger and he's turned toward a jealousy that shows his faithful, stubborn love and commitment to them. And then he gives his beautiful promise. In verse 17, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem are really the same thing. Zion is the hill upon which the city of Jerusalem sits. Perhaps Zion has a little bit more religious uh, connotations because of being of the temple mount where the temple would be built. But when he says Zion and Jerusalem, he's talking about the same entity. Um, but the, but he, he uses both terms here, I think, to express the, the fullness of his devotion and love. The Lord will comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. And that language of comforting Zion echoes Isaiah chapter 40, where the prophet, uh, the Lord foreshadowed through the prophet Isaiah the rekindling of his mercy toward his captive people. And this was well before the actual captivity. And here's, here's the first two verses of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so the comfort that Yahweh brings to Zion is that foreshadowed and foretold comfort from uh, the prophet Isaiah. God is now returning to his people in kindness, in blessing, and in jealous love and pursuit. So the main idea of this vision is that God promises to restore his presence to his people. If these 70 years of exile have been the, the, the absence of God in a, in a way, the absence of God's favor and his presence in blessing to them, then this is his return to them to restore his presence. When he speaks of the cities of Judah overflowing again, when he speaks of, of, of returning to Jerusalem with mercy, my house shall be built in it. That's the temple where God's presence would dwell. God is promising to restore his presence to his people. For Christians living in a broken and ever-breaking world where often evil looks like it's winning and righteousness is more costly than ever, it's good to remember this image of Yahweh's horsemen patrolling the earth. 
God knows what is happening in his world. And his heart is inclined toward his own, to draw near to them, to do them good. This first vision of Zechariah encourages us to look with eyes of faith beyond the fog of war and difficulty surrounding us to the promise of restoration that God has given us in the gospel. Then right on the heels of that image, there's a second one. And it seems, by the way, I didn't say this up front, it seems that all eight of these visions are given one right after the other, probably on the same night. Zechariah uh, dates it on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came. And then he gives all eight of these visions in succession. So it seems that all of these visions were given one right after the other on the same night. So it might feel a little bit whiplashy to go from one to the next, but that's probably something like what Zechariah experienced uh, even more so because he was actually in those in those visions. So let's look at verses 18 through 21, and we see an image of four horns and four craftsmen. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So the four horns here, we're told quite plainly by the angel, represent uh, the, the, the nations, as it were, that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Horns were an image of military strength, and so they were a common uh, representation of, of battle, uh, of armies, uh, of empires. And so when he says that these are the four horns that have scattered uh, Judah and Israel and Jerusalem, he's saying these are nations of the earth that have oppressed the people of God. And indeed, the scattering, including the, the exile that had happened for these past 70 years. And he includes, I want you to know, he also includes a sort of comprehensive, uh, like all of, of the, the descendants of Abraham here. He's not just speaking to those who were in Judah, that is the southern nation that had been exiled to Babylon, because he says that these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, that being the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem. And so... He's looking here at all of his people, wherever they have been scattered to. Some had been in Egypt, it seems, some in Assyria, some in Babylon. So they've been all over the place. And he is saying, all of my covenant people uh, have been uh, burdened by these nations, these horns. And so then he sees four craftsmen. And I think the four, by the way, I don't think we should get too specific about trying to identify particular nations with those horns. People like to do that in apocalyptic. Oh, this horn is probably Babylon. This horn is probably Syria. This horn is probably the Philistines. This, right? Uh, I think it's probably better to just see four as sort of comprehensive. You could think the four corners of the earth. You could think the four directions, north, south, east, west. All of the enemies of God's people who have oppressed them is who God has in mind in this vision. And then he shows four craftsmen or blacksmiths. And it could refer, some think that these craftsmen refer to Jewish workers who would be rebuilding the temple. So perhaps it's, it's the, what's in view here is the rebuilding of the temple by the craftsmen of Israel. 
And it's kind of through the rebuilding of the temple and through the return of Yahweh to the temple that these foreign nations would find their judgment. But it seems to me more fitting, more likely, uh, that these craftsmen represent other nations uh, who themselves God would use against the nations currently oppressing Israel. We see him doing that all over the place in the New Testament, in the Old Testament and beyond. God moves the nations about to conquer, I mean, to accomplish his purposes, sometimes to bring judgment on his people, sometimes to bring judgment on one another. Sometimes he uses his people to bring judgment on the pagan nations around them. God uses the nations of the earth in these ways all the time. So it seems to me that the craftsmen are probably other nations who are coming in God's providence to now oppress the oppressors, right? He says that these horns have lifted their horns against Judah, against the people of Israel, and now these craftsmen will come and cast down their horns. So it seems to be that judgment is coming to these oppressing nations. These craftsmen, these nations, will terrify and cast down the nations who have scattered Judah, most immediately, uh, Assyria and Babylon, Persia, etc. And so the main idea of this short image is that God promises to conquer his people's enemies. So he's reminding them, I'm not just drawing near to you and restoring uh, Jerusalem. I am fighting your battles for you. I will oppress your oppressors. And just as God promised to defeat the enemies of Israel, so does he promise to defeat our enemies today. Those who threaten, belittle, and oppress Christians in our own land and around the world in even more extreme ways will by no means escape his justice. His people will be vindicated and their enemies will be cast down. And our greatest enemy is already then cast down through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead, he destroyed once for all the one who held the power of death, namely the devil, and secured the freedom of all who would trust in him. And so the second vision of Zechariah reminds us that we have a champion who fights our battles and casts down our enemies. And the third vision, the last one we'll look at today, it's lengthier than the second one, comes in chapter 2. And it shows in the first five verses a man measuring Jerusalem. So we're going to read this actually in two pieces. There's, a, there's the vision itself, and then there's, a, there's an exhortation that comes on the heels of that vision. So we're going to look at the vision first, and then we'll consider the exhortations that flow from it. So here's verses 1 through 5 of Zechariah 2. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, excuse me, and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. We saw the measuring line referenced in the first vision back in chapter 1, verse 16, when Yahweh said, I have returned to Jerusalem, my house shall be built in it, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. We saw it referenced there, and now we see in this third vision 
a man with the measuring line who is considering Jerusalem and the status and the shape and the size of Jerusalem. And the verdict, the, the result of this measuring is that Jerusalem will be filled to overflowing with people and protected and filled by Yahweh's presence. It's interesting to consider that, that it says that the, the villages would be inhabited without walls because in that day, walls were really important to the security of a city. And so that it would be inhabited as villages without walls might lead one to think, oh no, do we have something to worry about? We should be concerned about the safety of our city because it doesn't have any walls. But notice, it does have walls. Who is the wall? It's Yahweh himself. I will be to her a wall of fire all around. You have nothing to worry about in Jerusalem. This is a secure and a safe people, even if you don't have physical walls in the city, because I am the wall of Jerusalem. This is what God is saying. And I will be the glory in her midst. And so there's this beautiful, glorious, overflowing city. Jerusalem will once again be prosperous and, and filled with people and with livestock and, and, and overflowing with the presence of God. And this echoes all kinds of, of promises of God throughout uh, the Old Testament and the, the way that he designed his people to live. Back in Leviticus 26, 11, he had said, I will make my dwelling among you. In 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11, as, as Solomon's temple is being, uh, has been built and is being uh, uh, dedicated, we're told a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So the glory of God has filled the temple. And he's saying in the same way, I will be the glory in her midst. His presence is returning. His glory is returning. In Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, the prophet sees visions of the temple rebuilt and the glory of God returning to dwell there forever. And so the image of the man measuring Jerusalem is a promise. It's a picture of God's overflowing blessing and presence with his people. And interestingly, one commentator, Michael Barrett, says, to set out to measure the city limits at this time was no small demonstration of faith. The city was in ruins and the temple was in shambles. The rubble of destruction cluttered the streets. Sight saw devastation. Faith perceived restoration. So this image is a way of lifting the eyes of the people of, of Israel. Look beyond the rubble. Look beyond the situation and see my purposes, my plans, my promises for you. So that's the image. And then it's followed by a prophetic exhortation, either from Zechariah or maybe from the angel. It's a little bit, uh, it, it's ambiguous. And there's a phrase in here about being sent to uh, Babylon that makes me think that perhaps it's actually the angel that's speaking all of this, but it's, it's a little bit hard to say. But let's read verses 6 through 13. Here is the, the exhortation that flows from this image of the measuring of Jerusalem. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. 
Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So this exhortation is a summons to the Jews still residing in Babylon. So when it says, up, flee from the land of the north, that's a reference to Babylon. Even though Babylon lay to the east of Israel geographically, to avoid marching through the huge desert to the east, they all would have come up around the Fertile Crescent and then down to Israel from the north. So when they say the land of the north, that's because from their perspective, the enemies always come from the north. That's where they, that's how they travel there. So when he says flee from the land of the north, that's what he means. And that's made even more clear when he says, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon kind of a personified way of speaking of that city, of that kingdom that was against God. It, it was idolatrous. It, it worshiped false, they worshiped false gods. And he's calling his people to leave Babylon and to come back. And indeed, to escape from it, to flee from it, because judgment is coming. This is what God says. He says, I will shake my hand over them that is over these nations, over Babylon, and they will become plunder for those who served them, right? So God is planning, as he's already made clear in the, the second image, he's planning to move against Babylon and these oppressing nations with divine judgment and justice. But some of his people are still living there. It's a little bit like Abraham sort of pleading with God to, to get Lot out of Sodom before he brought judgment there. Right? There are people of God living in the place that's about to be judged. And so the angel or, or Zechariah called to the people who are still living there, flee, escape, come back to Zion that has come back to Jerusalem because God is going to bring judgment. Perhaps you too need a reminder today to flee from Babylon. Perhaps you've gotten too comfortable with the world its values, its obsessions, its entertainments, its idolatries. And you need to hear a word of loving but firm warning from God today. Escape to Zion. Leave your sin and compromise behind and return in faith to God. This is a message that we need to hear even today. And so he summons them to return, to flee, escape, because he's going to judge them. Why? Why is he going to judge Babylon? Well, we have a couple of really clear expressions of why. Verse 8, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now, the apple of the eye is the pupil, which is the most vulnerable part of the eye, which is one of the most sensitive parts of the body. So to compare the people of Judah and Israel to the apple of his eye is to say these are vulnerable, 
sensitive uh, uh, people who need to be protected, right? To say that, that the one who touches them has touched the apple in his eyes, to say, you mess with them, you mess with me. That's what God is saying here. His heart is, these are mine. I take care of them. I guard them. I cherish them. That's how God regards his chosen people. And then we're told down in verse 12, the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land. His portion. Think about that. Like when the people of Israel were uh, dividing up the, the, the land and the allotments. Okay, here's your portion for your family, for your inheritance. What Yahweh receives as his portion is his people. His portion, what he has as his inheritance, as his own uh, reward, in a sense, is his people. He will again choose Jerusalem. He is setting his love, his affection, his commitment upon the people of Israel. He loves them. He cares for them. He cherishes them. This, brothers and sisters, is the Lord's heart for you. As those whom he has chosen, whom he has redeemed, whom he has called his own, you are the apple of his eye, the portion of his inheritance, the delight of his heart. It's good to remember who we are to the Lord. And this vision ends with a pretty somber warning. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That's like, you better watch and wait. Something's about to happen. God's about to move. Aslan is on the move. Here's the main idea of this image. God is ready to act on behalf of his people. He has promised to return to them. He has promised that he's going to bring justice and judgment to the nations who have oppressed them. And he's telling them now, I'm ready to go. I am poised and ready to act. Well, I want you to notice a really significant biblical connection before we leave these three visions behind. The Abrahamic covenant is a backdrop behind these visions. It's never named. It's not explicit. It's not quoted. But it's an idea that is present in one way or another in all three of these images. Genesis 12, 3, where God chose Abram out of the land of Ur and made a covenant with him, reads this way. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Both of those ideas, the, the, the cursing of those who dishonor Abraham and the blessing of all the families of the earth through him are present in these visions. Consider the first one, cursing for Israel's enemies. Israel's those who have descended from Abraham, right? In chapter one, in the first vision, verses 14 and 15, Yahweh is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. Why? Because he promised Abraham all that time ago, I will curse the one who dishonors you. And so here, the ones who have oppressed you, who have held you captive, I am exceedingly angry with them. In the second image, in one verse 21, chapter 1, verse 21, the four craftsmen who are coming to terrify and cast down the horns of Israel's oppressors. God is moving against these oppressing nations. Why? Because he promised Abraham, I will curse the one who dishonors you. 
In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, in this third image, the Lord will plunder Babylon because they've touched the apple of his eye. He will shake his hand over them and they will be terrorized by his justice. Why? Because he promised Abraham, the one who dishonors you, I, I will curse. These judgments on the nations who have been Israel's oppressors are God's honoring of his promise to Abraham that he would curse those who dishonor him. So in all three of those images that Zechariah receives, those first three images, we see this, this aspect of the Abrahamic covenant back behind it. God is on the move against the oppressors of Israel because they have dishonored Abraham. They have dishonored his people. And then the second aspect of it is beautifully clear. That's the, the blessing for all nations, blessing for all the nations. Obviously, the, the heart and the theme of these images surrounds Jerusalem and Judah and Israel, the covenant people of God, the descendants of Abraham. But I want you to notice how frequently the other nations are included in these images. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. I think those inhabitants include Gentile peoples because down in verse 11, he makes it even clearer. Many nations shall join themselves to me in that day and they shall be my people. People who aren't ethnically Jewish, people who aren't descendants of Abraham will join themselves to Yahweh and he will regard them as his people. So this blessing, this image of restoration, the fullness of God's people It doesn't just include the physical descendants of Abraham. It includes these other nations who join themselves to Yahweh. God's promise to Abraham was, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this vision of Jerusalem's ultimate restoration shows not only Abraham's descendants, but people from many nations as well, inhabiting the city and joining themselves to Yahweh. And again, we see that image prophetically, apocalyptically in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9, where John sees this innumerable multitude from every tribe and nation and language of the earth gathered around the throne of God, bearing the name of Christ on them, right? This is his people, this multi-ethnic tapestry of languages and tribes and cultures and nations have been God's purpose for his redeemed people all along. And we, friends, Gentile believers in God's Jewish Messiah, are among those recipients of God's welcoming grace. You might remember 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That is our joy and our legacy and our inheritance. These visions depicting God's renewed presence with his people would would have three distinct fulfillments. When you're looking at Old Testament prophecies like this, it's important to see the sort of multifaceted way that they come about. So in history, they would be fulfilled quite literally. The temple will be rebuilt. Jerusalem would be restored. And that indeed comes to pass. God would dwell again with his people there in Jerusalem. There's There's a fulfillment in the gospel They would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the Messiah who comes as the new temple, the new place, if you will, where God's people would meet with him. 
Jesus himself refers uh, to, to his body as the temple. He said, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. Referring, of course, to his death and resurrection. Why? Because he's the new temple. You don't have to go to a building to worship God anymore. You come to Christ. He is the new temple of God. So in the gospel, there's this fulfillment in the person of Christ. And then finally, there's a fulfillment yet to come in the age to come where there's a new Jerusalem, a new creation where God will dwell with his people. Revelation 21.3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So these images point us to the covenant faithfulness of God. His purpose is to bless and to restore his people. And while he would indeed in time and in history return to his people and bless the people of Israel as his covenant people, we enjoy an even fuller fulfillment of that promise in the person of Christ. And we have the eternal hope of a new creation awaiting where we will dwell forever with God. Let's pray.